You turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you, and you'll find Galatians 5 on page 1,168 in those Bibles. 1,168. In a few moments, we'll read there. Jesus promised that he would build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so the church with a capital C, the universal church, God's people, will, will prevail as long as God's plans are yet to be accomplished. He, he will preserve the church in a global sense until his plans are accomplished. But local churches with a lowercase c, local churches like ours, they close every week. In fact, I just read that every week in America... 85 churches closed their doors uh, to never open again. 65 open, brand new churches planted, but 85 closed down. Why? Why do they fracture, dissolve? Why do they disappear? Why do they pull themselves apart? How, how do they do it? What, what leads to that? There's no simplistic answer. There's no one answer that fits every scenario. But there are a few common answers, a few common things that lead to churches either through a sudden implosion or a gradual decline that lead to churches closing. Sometimes it's doctrinal drift. Sometimes a once sound church or even movement of churches, denominations of churches drift over decades until it's no longer really recognizable as biblical Christianity. Sometimes it is from ungodly leadership. There's qualifications given in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 about what leadership in a church should look like. Warnings in 1 Peter 5 about leaders not being lording leaders. And when those principles are violated, leadership can tear a church apart and can lead to a close. Being overly internally focused rather than a healthy balance between internal health and an external heart for the loss can lead to a steady decline as churches no longer care for those outside of their own walls. But one of the most repeated warnings in Scripture for New Testament churches, for churches, uh, various New Testament letters, has to do with internal strife and conflict. That the way believers treat one another often can lead to a church declining and closing and imploding or steadily just disappearing. I, I want to give you a little glimpse of this, kind of a quick survey, because I want you to see how broad this is in New Testament letters, letters written to various local churches. Notice how many of them put a finger either by a warning, like a negative warning, or a positive encouragement about behavior that could tear a church apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. In fact, the whole first four chapters of 1 Corinthians will be on this theme. It says, I exhort you, brethren, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed that there are quarrels among you. There's division and quarrels that are happening in this body that he's addressing in 1 Corinthians and then later in 2 Corinthians. In the book of Romans, after 11 rich chapters on doctrine, on, on how a person is saved, how somebody comes to Christ by faith, it turns a corner in chapter 12 and looks at issues of 
kind of application to life. And, and notice some of the things that it says. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And then in chapter 14, in a section that has to do with conflict over debatable matters of conscience, it says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Continue. Chapter 15, then, on a positive side, he says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. And when believers fail to do that, they judge rather than accept in kind of appropriate ways. It's division. And churches can ultimately collapse. In Ephesians, after three chapters of doctrine, three chapters on the gospel, gets in chapter four, it turns with this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That diligence tells us it's not automatic. It's need for humility and, and patience with one another. Colossians has a similar idea. Philippians has a similar idea. Philippians is a joyful book. All throughout the book, it's a book marked by joy in the gospel. Uh, and yet, two people are, are named. How, how would you like your name to be in a New Testament book for all of time for believers to read because you are fighting with one another. That's what it is here. It says, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These are not peripheral people. He says, they have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, but urge them to live in harmony because apparently they're not. Colossians, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. This love, this love that is a perfect bond of unity is urged. Most persuasively for me is in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a, a book about suffering. It's written to a group of people that are being persecuted and, and yet running throughout, even while helping them know how to respond to persecution, is this theme of the need to fervently love each other. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 9. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I love that. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, what is he saying? Build a bigger bunker, load it with food, Lots of ammunition, right? No, he says, there's appropriate ways to prepare for things, but he says, no. Be of sound judgment, sober spirit, pray. But above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because even in times of persecution, and perhaps especially so, there can be a tendency to turn on one another rather than keep fervent in your love for one another. It's kind of a long introduction, but I wanted you to see how broad this is so it's not just Galatians. But now let's look at Galatians. We're really going to focus on one verse. Verse 15. I'll read verses 13 to 15 to remind you of the context, but we're going to focus on one verse today. Pick up in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, 
Take care that you are not consumed by one another. Bite and devour. That's the warning here. We'll primarily focus on this warning, and then we'll briefly introduce really what will come in coming weeks, and it's the solution. There's this warning, and then there's a command and a promise. But we'll give most of our time to this warning, this warning about biting and devouring one another. Why are we talking about this, though? Anytime we, we deal with something like this, a question maybe comes to people's mind. Are, are we talking about conflict because there's lots of conflict going on right now? Um, it's just the next verse. right? We've been teaching through Galatians. It's the next verse. And so we're covering it because it's there. Is there a need to cover it? There always is. Which is why all these New Testament books are addressing conflict. Because any church, regardless of the level of health, can be pulled down by this. There are particular times in the life of a church, though, where it, it could be maybe vulnerable to that. And, and a time, I think, according to the book of Acts, is during times of growth. And we're not experiencing, like, explosive growth here, but I, I meet new people every week. Probably five to ten new people I meet every week. Some come back, some don't. Some are visiting other places. But over the course of a year, there's an influx of new people. And as you read through the book of Acts, you see that when they had a time when they were increasing in numbers, Acts 6.1, this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose, and there was conflict, and they needed to work through it. And churches that grow, they experience that. Long-time members maybe feel overlooked or pushed out of key roles, or they're used to coming in and seeing a bunch of people they know, and then they, they feel like they don't know people, and that can be hard for long-time members. New people can miss aspects of their former church that they maybe don't see here in the same way. Maybe change and adaptation can feel too rapid for some people and too slow for others. So it's a time for a church that could be kind of ripe for conflict, for biting and devouring one another. So we're dealing with this passage because it's the next verse. Is it timely? It probably is. Okay, let's look at this warning then and kind of develop it some. This warning, it's a warning about biting and devouring one another. Verse 15 Bite and devour refer to how animals attack each other. It's animalistic terms. You have heard the famous line from Tennyson, the poet, where he talked about nature as red in tooth and claw. Nature red in tooth and claw. What that poetic phrase means is that the natural world is marked by violence. You know this if you watch nature documentaries, right? And it's about a lion attacking a wildebeest. And whether the documentary is about the lion or the wildebeest maybe affects whether the lion is viewed as the good guy or the bad guy, right? But either way, that wildebeest is torn apart. That's the phrase that's used here. That's this idea of biting and devouring one another. It's been a book that is focused on the gospel, clarifying the gospel, a gospel of grace. But woven throughout is a warning not just to preserve a gospel doctrine, but gospel culture. How we treat one another that, that reflects what we say we believe about how somebody comes to, to God by faith in Christ as an extension of God's grace. The content of the gospel must be clear, but must be lived out in the church. So it warns about how that might not happen. Instead, people might bite and devour one another. I'm going to give you four common ways that I think that happens in a local church. The, the, the first is maybe a little bit broad, and it shows how this fits in the context. We bite and devour one another when our interactions are characterized by 
what Galatians 5 will call deeds of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. Deeds of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. This chapter might be one that you know if you grew up in church or you know, kind of familiar with the New Testament, because this is a Bible top 40 part. I mean, this is a, this is a, a well-known, well-loved passage because of the fruit of the Spirit section that will come later. But this is really a section about conflict. It begins and ends it. We, we see it in verse 15. We just read about biting and devouring one another. And then look all the way down to verse 26. If you still have your Bibles open, verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, biting and devouring, challenging one another, envying one another. It's really bookending this. You can squeeze in a little bit further and it's bookended on both ends about walking by the Spirit. Cover that in weeks to come. Verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit rather than as biting and devouring. Verse 25, let us also walk by the Spirit. So it, it's bookended by warnings about mistreatment of one another, conflict-like terms, and walking by the Spirit. So all that comes between sort of fits in that context. It will take more than one message to work through all this rich content that's in here. But I want you to notice as we look down at what, it's called, what it calls the deeds of the flesh. Notice how many of these are, are conflict terms. Put your eyes down on verse 19. In coming weeks, we'll develop this more. But just on a, a quick read-through, you can see this. The warning about not biting and devouring one another. And then verse 19, it says, The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. First three kind of in one category together of kind of sexual sins. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, maybe more like spiritual, religious sins. And then the next eight words are relational words. They're conflict words. They're ways that we bite and devour one another. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Things it says are not characteristic of somebody who God is made alive by the Spirit and is walking with the Spirit. And these are things that will devour one another. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that in coming weeks. But I want you to see that's the context. And let's press in a little bit more. We bite and devour by gossip and slander. Gossip and slanders so much loaded in this strife and dissension that's mentioned in here, these factions that were mentioned in this list of the deeds of the flesh. You might be familiar with the name Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was an early missionary to China, and he founded a group known as China Inland Mission. And his successor was a man named D.E. Hostie. And he oversaw China Inland Mission. He oversaw about 1,000 missionaries pioneering work all throughout China. And near the end of his experience and leadership, he was asked, what, what is the one thing that has done the most harm? What is the one thing that has been most difficult for your missionaries? And this is his answer. He says, looking back over these 50 years, I really think that if I were asked to mention one thing which has done more harm and occasioned more sorrow and division in God's work than anything else, I should say tail-bearing. Gossip, or tail-bearing, is one of the common sins of discord. It is a work of the flesh. 
Like a dreadful, contagious disease, it poisons people's minds and creates chaos and misinformation. What do we mean by gossip? It's, it's, it's sharing negative or confidential information with somebody who's not part of the problem or part of the solution. Negative or confidential information with somebody who's not part of the problem or part of the solution. We see it warned about throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, another long list of things that are warned about. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 20, notice that gossip really features prominently in this. He says, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife. Jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Many things that overlap with that list we just saw in Galatians 5, but, but gossip added in there. Proverbs warns about gossip. Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse man spreads strife. A slanderer separates friends. That's what gossip does. That's what slander does. It separates Proverbs 79, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter, that's gossip, repeating a matter, separates intimate friends. Which groups are most vulnerable to this? How can this pop up within a church? We know it's wrong. We talk about it all the time. If I were to ask you, is gossip wrong? You would say, yes, gossip is wrong. But, but it pops up in churches, and it often pops up in pockets of health. And here's what I mean. You've got groups within the church that there's a lot of health because they're spending time together. They're, they're sharing life together. They're talking about hardships and difficulties and struggles. And there's a lot of health, but that can easily bleed over into gossip because they're talking about so many other things that spills out into things that maybe they shouldn't talk about. So there's a lot of kind of healthy pockets in UBC that could be vulnerable to this. Youth group could be vulnerable to this. We have a great youth group right now flourishing group of, of young men and women, and I love to see them in here on, on Wednesday nights, they could be vulnerable to gossip. Because they're spending time together, they're talking, they're texting, it could be easy for that to happen. Crossroads, our college ministry, small group Bible studies, those are all pockets where gossip can pop up as people share life together and, and they cross over into something that's gossip rather than just asking for help in their own life. That's where there's vulnerability. What it says is that this is a way of biting and devouring one another. I have a friend, when somebody would start to gossip to him, he would, he would cover his ears with his hands and run out of the room. Um, you only have to do that once or twice before people don't gossip anymore, right? Um, now, that is maybe not my style, maybe not yours, but what would you do? What do you do if somebody's bringing up something that you think, I think this is Crossing over into gossip. Is there a tactful way you can say, hey, I appreciate your heart here. I just don't, I don't think that maybe this is the right environment to talk about this, or I really think you should talk to this person about it, or what's your strategy so that you're not one that is separating? Proverbs 26, 20 says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and when there is no whispering, quarreling ceases. Can we be ones that are like taking the log off the fire? We bite and devour by unrelenting criticism. Unrelenting criticism. James 5, 9. It says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. There's a type of complaining that falls into this. 
We see it in 1 Peter 4, 9 again. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. That word complain, I, I, I love it. The, the Greek word behind that, it's the word gagosmos. And it's a word that sounds like what it is. If you picture yourself kind of muttering, you can even do it under your breath. Gagosmos, gagosmos. It's like a muttering sound. And that's what it's talking about. And it's, it's a word that is the sound of it is what it is. It's a muttering, murmuring, complaining. It's what, in Numbers 14, as the people were being led out of Egypt, and they were complaining because they didn't have food, and then they were complaining because it wasn't the right kind of food, which maybe gives like parents PTSD about their own children in their own home, right? Um, this complaining, complaining, it's this murmuring. That's what's warned against here. But, but here's the thing with this point, I want to make sure you hear. We don't want a church where any criticism is considered excessive criticism. That isn't healthy either. And that could be an overreaction. That's like the ditch on the other side where, where leaders or volunteers in ministry over different areas feel like they can't be criticized. That can be totalitarian leadership. That can be a lording leadership. And that's not healthy either. Some criticism is just par for the course as people have different ideas or think things could be done a little bit differently. But we have to ask, is my criticism, is it relentless? Is it balanced? Is it fair? Is it informed? Is it driven by preference or principle? Can well-intentioned, mature believers see this differently? Is it a difference of principle or a difference of strategy? Here's what I mean with that one. We might all agree that we should help the poor, but there might be different strategies to go about that. Is it individual care? Is it providing good jobs? Is it partnering with other churches? Is it handing out food? Is it supporting government agencies? You can differ on strategy while agreeing on principle, and much complaining is about strategy sometimes. So, so what is my complaint about? What is my criticism about? Are there ways that well-intentioned believers can see this differently? Use a little bit of analogy here from our own backyard. We, we have chickens in our backyard, and we have for, for years. And, and chickens are relentless with one another. How many of you have raised chickens before, either in your backyard or in a farm? Oh, many of you. So you'll, you'll know this. If chickens, if there's a weakness with one, maybe one has a little bit of a sore spot, is starting to lose some feathers, what do the rest of them do? They're relentless. They peck at it. Even if that chicken had far, formerly been like the top of the pecking order, if there's weakness, the others will peck, they will peck, they will pull out the feathers, they will kill it, they will eat it sometimes. This is shocking, I know. Uh, <laughs> nature red in tooth and claw. That's what, it, that's what it's referring to. Why? Why? There's probably all sorts of answers people can give, but, but what often happens is you think, why aren't you showing compassion to this bird? Right? This bird is hurting. But they don't. They peck it to death. And I think sometimes churches can do that. Somebody has a weakness. Maybe it's an immaturity. Maybe it's a sin they're struggling with. Maybe it's a difference in something else. And people peck and they peck and they peck. Rather than showing compassion and encouragement and care and grace and time, that is biting and devouring one another. And I think criticism can be a way if it's relentless and excessive and not balanced and not fair. One more. 
We bite and devour when we judge one another on issues of conscience. It's the context of Romans 14. Areas that, that believers might disagree, and sometimes they're related to maturity. Other times it just appears to be different convictions. Let's go ahead and take a look at this. It's a longer chapter, but I'll just excerpt part of it. Romans 14, 2 to 5. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. There are areas of the Christian life that each person must be convinced in their own mind. There be legitimate differences. These are secondary, third level things. They're not like key, clear issues of morality that God has spelled out in his word, but secondary things. If I prioritize worship, is it okay for me to work on Sunday afternoons? Is that okay or not? Is any amount of alcohol acceptable to drink? How expressive should we be during worship? How should we school our children? What type of clothing crosses the line into immodesty? Should Christians celebrate Christmas or hand out candy at Halloween? Traditional medicine versus alternative medicine. There's on and on. There's ways that Christians might develop different convictions. Or you might have strong convictions on some of these. And I'm not downplaying the appropriateness of you having strong convictions on it. But, but what this warns against is ways that we turn and we peck and we view with contempt and judge somebody who comes to a different conclusion and we make assumptions about why they've held to that view and not that aren't charitable rather than talking to them and asking questions and viewing their, their position charitably. That can be a way that we bite and devour so what do we do? Maybe, maybe this kind of like, is like a, needs like a trigger warning for you because maybe you've been through these experiences in church. Maybe here, maybe someplace else. And, and you see, I, I know what it is like to go through this. What's the solution? Well, that's what we'll see in the next section here. And I'll really just introduce it today. But I want you to see where the solution is. The solution is, through this command and promise about walking by the Spirit. Rather than just saying, don't bite and devour one another, which is true, don't do that, right? But, but how do we get the resources to do that? Let me read, starting in verse 16. Verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care you are not consumed. Then verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There's a command and a promise. The command is walk by the spirit. And the promise is as you do that, you will not fulfill, you will not carry out this desire of the flesh, this desire that bites and devours one another, these deeds of the flesh of enmity and strife and things that says come from that. The solution is walk by the Spirit. 
We'll come back to this next week because it deserves its own message. But the brief version there, to walk by the Spirit is to live in humble submission and conscious dependence on the Spirit. Humble submission. I'm submitting to what God says is right and I am dependent upon the Spirit to carry that out. Living in humble submission and conscious dependence. And as we do that, it says you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. These sinful desires that still rage within us and will until the day we die and are in opposition to the work of the Spirit. It says walk by the Spirit and you won't carry those out. And, and, and I want to end with this. I want you to see where the solution is here. I, I mentioned that this begins and ends this section with conflict. Don't bite and devour one another. Verse 26, then, let us not become boastful, envying, challenging one another. And right in the middle is this rich section on the Spirit. And right in the middle of that is this well-known, well-loved passage about the fruit of the Spirit. You probably memorized it as a kid if you went to Sunday school growing up. Your grandma maybe had it embroidered on a pillow. Maybe you guys have it hanging in your bathroom. But I want you to read the fruit of the Spirit in light of all that we've just seen. That it's not just dropped in there. It's in the context of conflict. About not biting and devouring one another. And so I want you to read these words in light of what does it mean to have a church that doesn't bite and devour one another? And what you'll see is these words describe that type of church. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friends, the church that is characterized by those virtues is a church that does not bite and devour one another. Let's pray.